0: page 346 in the Church Bibles, 1 Kings, chapter 8. And we're going to have verses 22 onwards. No, we're not. We're going to have verses um, 54 onwards uh, to look at in just a moment. If you travel to Israel today and speak to any Orthodox Jew or anywhere in the world for that matter, those who strongly practice the Jewish religion, they will all say the same sort of thing, that they are looking for a king like King David. They want a king like him. They all look to David as the greatest of kings. A king described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. What a wonderful description. And if you were to push them a bit further, they will say that ultimately they were looking for the Messiah, King David's greater son. But great though David was, he had weaknesses, as we know well. He was an extraordinary military general, wonderful strategies militarily, in fact, so much so that his strategies are still studied today. And I was hearing just the other day that in some of the um, military schools, even today, David's strategies are examined. And uh, he's called in the Bible a great man of faith. He's listed with those in Hebrews chapter eleven. That catalogue of people of faith. Not only that, he was a great poet, and a great song writer, and musician but his weakness was that he found it difficult to control himself some of the time he was passionate he was brilliant he was emotional he was loyal but he was an adulterer sometimes a poor father and sometimes he acted out of disobedience to the lord and as a result of that he was not allowed to fulfill the greatest desire of his heart, which was to build a temple for the worship of God. He longed to do it, but he could not. He did, however, draw up the plans because it was his heart's desire. He raised the finance for that, but it fell to his son Solomon to actually do the building and to lead the dedication ceremonies for the temple that was being built. Now, I think that we find it difficult today to grasp the significance and the importance of the temple in Israel then. I mean, it was far more important than any great cathedral that's built today, the importance of the temple. The whole nation centered on the temple. Everything happened from the temple. It was like the center of a great circle of the whole nation and its influence, all focused on the temple. It was so important. And because of that, when it was actually built, Solomon had lots and lots of people involved in doing it. If you turn back to chapter 5, if you've got your Bible open in fr- front of you, chapter 5, verse 13, it will tell you a little bit about that. And it says, King Solomon conscripted laborers from all Israel, 30,000 men. It's <laughs> Pretty good, isn't it? 30,000 men. He sent them off to Lebanon shifts of... 10,000 a month, so that they spent one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adniram was in charge of the forced labor. They had forced labor even then. In charge of the forced labor. Solomon had 70,000 carriers, 80,000 stonecutters in the hills, as well as 3,300 foremen who supervised the project and directed the workmen. At the king's command, they removed from the quarry provide a foundation of dressed stone for the temple. The craftsmen of Solomon and Hiram and the men of uh, Gebel cut and prepared the timber and stone for the building. In chapter 6, verse, just verse 7, in the building of the temple, only blocks, uh, only blocks dressed in, at the quarry were used and no hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built." <laughs> What a task, building this temple. Magnificent. I haven't covered half of it. When you come to the interior, you know, all the gold and all all that sort of thing. It was magnificent. It took seven years. Chapter 6, verse verse 38 tells us, uh, it took uh, seven years to build that temple. 30,000 men working on it, 80,000 in the hills getting the materials and so on. What a task. Then came the dedication of the temple. What a day that was for Israel. And it says in the scripture that the glory of the Lord filled the temple. What we sometimes refer to as the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, the glorious presence of God was so real. And it says in the scripture in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 7 that it was so real, the presence of that the priests and the people did not dare enter the temple because it was so magnificent. And the people knelt and shouted out, He is good, his love endures forever. Again and again they shouted it. And while they did that, Solomon offered a sacrifice. His sacrifice was 22,000 head of cattle, 120,000 sheep and goats. And they used in the worship musical instruments that King David had made, especially for the task. He didn't take the huff when he wasn't allowed to do what he wanted to do. He did everything he could to make sure it happened. Provided the money, drew up the plans, even designed and built these musical instruments, the scripture says. And they were taken by the priests and Levites to leave the praise. And the praise was that theme, his love endures forever. And the worship went on like that for seven days. And then Solomon, the king, led prayers of dedication the temple. Recalling God's greatness, reminding people as he prayed, reminding God of their history and how God had walked walked with them and led them as a people. And the wonder of God dwelling amongst his people symbolized by the temple in the middle of them all. And then about their responsibility because God was amongst them, how they must live as God's people. And finally, In all of this, Solomon stood and he addressed the people and said, all right, having had this dedication, I've got things to say to you. That's what we're going to read. Chapter 8, verse 54. When Solomon had finished all these prayers and supplications to the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord where he'd been kneeling with his hands spread out towards heaven. He stood and blessed the whole assembly of of Israel In a loud voice saying praise be to the Lord who's given rest to his people Israel just as he promised not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses may the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers may he never leave us or forsake us may he turn our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep the commands and regulations uh, decrees and regulations he gave our fathers. And may these words of mine which I have prayed before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. But your hearts must be fully committed to the Lord your God to live by his decrees and to obey his commands at this time. Let me read that last verse again. But your hearts must be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and to obey his commands as at this time. That's the crunch point. All this magnificence... (coughs) All this symbol symbolizing of the presence of God, <coughs> not only symbolizing it, the reality of God's presence amongst the people of Israel. But your hearts must be fully committed. And I think that's the thing that we're thinking about particularly today. Commitment in Christian things is simply not an optional extra. You know, I... I I remember when I was at college, Bible college, and um, you used to have visiting people coming from all over the place, and missionaries and well-known speakers and not so well-known speakers and all sorts of things. And, you know, different people coming, and they sometimes they'd be referred to as fellow believers or something like that, or as a Christian, or a Christian worker, or a missionary, or an evangelist. But there was one class, he's a man of God. You know, as if this was a super category, something different. Ah, oh, yes, they're all missionaries and evangelists and teachers and so on, but he's a man of God. And uh, it, became a, it became quite amusing, really, to think that um, you know, men of God are something different from all the rest. But not here, of course. If we're going to be as individuals and as a church, knowing the presence of God and serving God in, in a way that is effective, it must be it, when we are totally committed from our heart. That doesn't mean at all that we'll never make mistakes. But the commitment of our heart is to the Lord. He is our passion. He is our focus. He is what is supremely important to us. So what does it mean to be committed in this way? And with that in mind, and as a backdrop, let's turn back to Ephesians chapter 3, the prayer that we have before us as our vision prayer. Ephesians chapter 3, and the Last few verses, from verse 16 onwards, page 1178, if you're using a church Bible. What does it mean then to be committed or fully committed to the Lord? What Paul has to say, he doesn't use the word committed, but what he has to say here is some aspect of what it will mean for us as a church if we're to be known as committed people, fully committed people. Well, he says this. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. We've thought about that the last two weeks. So that he in your hearts through faith. And here it is. And I pray that being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God first thing he says is you need to be rooted, rooted. It comes from a Greek word, the word rooted comes from a Greek word which, from which we get our word rhizome. You know, a plant, some plants have what are called rhizomes and it means a mass of roots really, it's the basic meaning of it. In, in other words, to be firmly established, to be committed, we need to make sure that we have good, strong roots. We should be rooted, firmly planted. Now, I'm not a, a, a great gardener and I'm not an expert in these things, but I do know this, that if you plant a new tree, just reminds me of a joke, but perhaps I, I hadn't better digress. But, <laughs> but, 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 oh, all right, then. A the man was driving down the road and he saw one man digging a hole and another man filling it in. Then he went down the road and dug another hole and filled it in. And he stopped and he said, what is it doing? He said, well, normally there are three of us working for the council. The man who puts the tree in, he's ill today. (laughs) But but that's a different story. But when you plant trees like that, when you plant trees like that, you put the tree in the hole and then they will put a stake in. And the stake is there for a very important reason. It's not just so that the tree doesn't get broken off, though it does have that effect. It is actually so that the Wind does not blow it backwards and forwards and loosen the roots. It's important that the roots are strong and grounded because all the pressures from around round and about will stop it being grounded in the, in the soil. And we ourselves, Paul is saying, we need to be rooted like that. In other words, fixed. There are things we need to hold on to so that we develop strong roots. Colossians 2 puts it like this, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith. Now let me ask you, are your roots fixed? Are they established? Are they grounded? How are your roots growing? So often we just want to look at the fruit. We want to look at the outcome and the things that we can see, but what about the roots? The things that nobody else sees. The time spent in secret, the time spent in praying. the time spent in God's word how are your roots growing? And then he says not only roots, he said rooted and established. And here the metaphor changes uh, from planting trees or planting plants to building a building. For this refers to laying a foundation. So Paul says before any building is possible, foundations have to be laid. that word established, I looked it up and there are just four places it's used in the New Testament. I'll just touch on them. Matthew 7, 24 about, speaks about the wise man who built his house upon the rock. Built his house on the rock. Then Luke, 4, uh, Luke 6, verse 48, tell, uh, about the same story. It says, he who hears my words and puts them into practice is like a man who builds his house and dug down deeply and laid foundations on rock. Then Colossians 1.23, he says, Continue in your faith, established and firm, not moving from the hope. And the last one is 1.5.10. After you've suffered a little while, God will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So there you have it, all the uses of that word. You need to select where you're building, on the rock you need to dig down deep in other words it takes effort you need to fix your eyes on the final outcome the hope that's set before us and you need to endure the suffering that you're likely to face endurance the rock the foundation the effort needed the fixing our eyes on the final outcome and the endurance through come what may. So we're to be rooted and established. And then rooted and established leads somewhere. What does it lead to? Well, he says rooted and established in love. Now, this love here, as you probably know, in the New Testament, they had four words for love. We just use love and it covers them all. There's in the New Testament erotic love and brotherly love and so on. But this word here is the New Testament word of agape love, agape love. That is love that is marked by sacrifice. That is love that pays the price, if you want to put it like that. Here there is a cost involved. Like Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. So here's the line of thought. The purpose of being rooted and established as what well has been strong and secure the last two weeks is to show sacrificial love, what it's for. Do you remember King David on one occasion, I won't go through the story, said to um, another king, he said, Neither will I offer to the Lord of that which costs me nothing. In other words, he was saying, If I've got loads of money and I just put my hand in my pocket and I give a hundred pounds to somebody who's in need, and so on. If I've got loads of money, it doesn't cost me a thing. I don't feel it, it's just something I did. David said, I will not offer to the Lord of that which costs me nothing. That means that in our giving as a church, as our giving as individuals, we need to bear in mind that we should give, as the people did in uh, the New Testament. You can read about it in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, how they gave beyond their means Out of the depth of their poverty, it costs. Now, this love here is that sort of love. The problem is that love is one of those warm, fuzzy words. You know, we all like to be loved, and we talk about love and so on, and songs and plays and poems and everything. talks about love and so on. It gives you a sort of warm, fuzzy feeling. But what does it actually mean, this sort of love? Well, there are two main aspects to it. Two main aspects. The first is, it's seen in our relationship with the church. What he calls here, all the saints. We are to love each other. In other words, we'll never know the fullness of God's love until we love each other. And for that, you need special powers. Especially sometimes. To live above with those we love, uh, that will then be glory. To live below with saints, we know, well that's a different story as the old rhyme says. It's all right to talk about love and say, oh yes, we learn to love each other, until something happens, <laughs> and then it's more difficult. It's all right in theory, but what about practice, learning to love one another? And Paul is conscious of that. I mean, I've spent this last week spending considerable amount of time picking up the pieces from the fallout of senior Christian leaders falling out with each other. And we do. And learning to love one another, we know it in theory, but it's so difficult in practice. Even with people who have the same ministry objectives, who are aiming at the same thing, we fall out with each other. Let alone what the New Testament says about learning to love your enemies. Even with people who are like us, have the same objectives. We need to learn to love one another. What do you do when your fellow believers, your brothers and sisters in Christ, act in a way that you don't like or you feel unhelpful? When the world peers through the curtains and sees the church and sees how there's bitterness and inability to get on with each other and so on. And it comes home to us all, not not just you and you and you, but to me as well. What do we do do about it? I I was just, uh, Hazel was throwing out some old music books this last week. And uh, because they have sentimental value, you've got to get rid of them, but you just flick through, oh, I remember this song, and I remember that, and so on, uh, going through it all. We used to sing a song that had the lines in it, they're looking at your walk, not listening to your talk. They're judging by your actions every day. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But what if you don't? What if you don't really love each uh, other, and uh, things get in the way? Philippians chapter two, if you want to just turn the page, Philippians chapter two, first few verses says this: If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love. If any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only on your own interests, but also the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So he talks here about having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. But how do you handle it if you're not? When you want to go down a particular route and feel that this is the right route for, the, for you, or for that matter, the church to go, and other believers feel that's the right path to go down. And as you look at them, they are equally godly people. To so those people are godly people, but they have different views. But there has to come a time when a decision has to be made. How do you handle it? If if this lot thinks that lot's wrong, I remember uh, I have shared it in the past, but I remember when I first became a Christian I thought Christians all agree with each other all the time. And although I was brought up in a Christian home, so I thought that in the church that I had joined when I was baptized and joined the church it was a large church, and I went to the first church business meeting and I thought it's going to be a wonderful time. (laughs) But actually... Actually, they, had, they were arguing. I'll tell you what they were arguing about. Carpet down the aisles. That's what it was. And um, whether they should have carpet. They hadn't had any until then. They just had the wooden floor. Anyway, it went backwards and forth And so on. And this lot said over here said, well, I think we ought to do this, this, and this. And somebody over here said, no, but I think we ought to do this, this, and this. How can you put carpet down there when there are people dying without Christ and so on? The money should go to them. And so on. It went... you know, backwards and forwards all of this. this. And the chairman, who was actually the church secretary of this big church, stood up and he said, look, we've obviously got two different opinions here, but we've got to come to a decision. Now I think we ought to do this. (laughs) 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 And of course you can agree when he says, everybody wants to, everybody can agree with each other as long as it's the thing that you want. What do you do, though, if, if you don't? Well, Paul says here, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. In in humility, count others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only on your own interests, but also the interests of others. In other words, what Paul is saying here, when there are decisions that have to be made, The one thing that will keep the love and the unity is recognizing that your brother's here and your brother's there, your sister's here and sister's there. Even though they have different views about what needs to be done, actually, their ultimate aim is the same, the mind of Christ. And if you can see in your brother and sister, they are seeking the mind of Christ, and these people are seeking the mind of Christ, if the the decision has to be taken and it's not the one that you would choose, then you can say, well, I can see that your ultimate aim is the same as mine and I can be united in love with you in it. You don't fall out then because you're both actually seeking the same thing. Of course, it means that we don't do things out of selfishness, as he puts it here, either in our vanity because we want our will done or because cons- out of conceit because we think that only our views are right. Not those things at all. But don't do things out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, we count others better than ourselves. And each one should look not only on his own interests, interests, but the interests of others. Then he goes on in this chapter 2 of Philippians to talk about Christ. And the whole of the rest of the chapter is an illustration of what he's been saying. Jesus, who did not count equality with God something to be grasped, and humbled himself and became obedient to death. That's how we are to behave. Now Paul, in this prayer of Ephesians, back to Ephesians, it, when he's speaking about that, he says, listen, if we have to live with all the saints, then we need to count others better than ourselves. And then you get in chapter 4 of Ephesians, we're not going to look at it now, but I, let me just touch Chapter 4, he goes on to enlarge on that. He talks about growing in unity, verses 1 to 6, about serving in grace, verses 7 to 13, about speaking in love, verses uh, 15 and 16, about living in holiness, 17 to 24, and about reacting in Christ-likeness, verses 25 to chapter 5, verse 2. All of these things are an expression of living together with the saints and expressing love. That's the first thing. But he doesn't only in that prayer, back to chapter 3, in the prayer that we're thinking about. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, you being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, that's the first thing, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So the first focus of being established and growing in love is focus on the saints. The second focus is recognizing the love of Christ and what that means for us. And he goes on to speak about that, the love of Christ. So commitment is to grow, not just in our own selfish interest, but looking at what Christ has done for us. And he describes it here in size terms. I mean, you can't measure love with a, a tape measure, can you? Or even a thermometer. So I suppose a thermometer is a better measure for love than a tape measure because thermometer is to do with heat and you want a passionate love for each other and for the Lord. But here he uses this picture of uh, breadth and length and height and depth. And as I was thinking about this, why did he use that? Why didn't he just say, make this love as big as you can? Why did he go through these four different things? Well, maybe if you just think about it, and you can apply it differently, there are different aspects of love which are illustrated by those four words. For example, the breadth of God's love. Chapter 1, he talks about the glorious inheritance we have in the saints. And it's so easy for us to be narrow in our thinking, Uh, looking at history. I say that because we're not back in those days. but Slavery. You know, it was the church. That upheld slavery as much as anybody else until eventually God revealed that it was not helpful and and, and right or classism rich and poor or young are more important than old or educated and uneducated or racism black and white all of these things are things that we all have our prejudices about if we're not careful I mean let me just ask you a question Supposing we had a, an Afghan elder here. Can you imagine that? Would you like that? Well, I, you know, it's difficult to imagine that because we, we look on the television and see this group of people who we think, oh, they're terrible people and so on. But when it come close to home, uh, we need to recognize that we all have our prejudices and our breadth, the breadth of Jesus' love stretches to everyone and so should ours because we all have our prejudices. We must guard against that. For the Jews, of course, it was the Gentiles. So it must be wide. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 13, he calls upon the Corinthians to widen their hearts to him. So is there somebody that you need to widen your heart to? Then there's the length of it, the extent to which it goes. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And of course it goes on to eternity, the length of God's love. That's why we spoke about security last week, of course. The breadth, the length, the height of God's love. He raised us and seated us at God's right hand, chapter 2, first couple of verses. Or Corinthians chapter 3, He has seated us with Christ. And we're seated with him. The height to which he's taken us from being in the depths of separation. He's raised us to seat him, us at God's right hand. The height of his love. And then the depth of his love. That out of which he has called us. Ephesians 2 speaks about our transgressions and sins in which we used to live. And when we followed the ways of the world. And Hebrews 7 speaks about he saves us He's able to save completely those who come to God through him. And the word completely means out of the depths. He saves us out of the depths. So when you look at the love of Christ, you see the breadth of it. You see the length of it. You see the height of it. You see the depth of it. And he says, when you come together as believers, I pray that together with all the saints you may recognize this and know it and see how great God's love is, right from the depths to the heights. So Paul is calling us to be committed to this sort of love, rooted and established. Love for each other, the saints. And more importantly, even than that, is love for Christ because of what he's done, recognizing the breadth, length, height, and depth of all that God has done. And our response can surely only be and we see what Christ has done. It can only be, I'm burning my bridges. I've come to Christ and I'm not turning back. I'm burning my bridges behind me. No chance to go back. All I have, I surrender to him. Showing itself in love for the church and in love for God. After all, he, we love him simply because he first loved us. Love, so amazing so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.